Hi everyone, I have a bunch of announcements, so I'm going to try and keep each one very quick. First, we have registrations open for a new online salon series on our website. Dan Ross and Boris Matthews, both members of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts, are going to hold a six-part series, so once monthly, and they'll have guest Jungian analysts come and discuss the Red Book. So it's a little bit like a reading group, and so um, participants will be expected to read some of the Red Book and bring their own questions um, that you would like to discuss with a few Jungian analysts. And some guest speakers will probably speak a little bit about their own work and their own impressions of the Red Book. For more information about that one, please visit our website. Also, we're running a store sale now through uh, December 31st. You can receive 30% off any audio and video downloads and self-study courses, so C is included. So for that, just visit our website as well and enter the code HOLIDAY on the card and checkout pages. Finally, we are still running our fall fundraising drive, and any support that you can give can help maintain this free podcast for you and also for everyone around the world who listens to it. Um, it really helps to make Jungian education accessible to support this podcast and our online store and our analytic trainings and everything. Any support you can provide is greatly appreciated to make a donation, to go to our store, or to learn more about the Salon series. Just visit our website, jungchicago.org. Thanks. podcast from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago. Hero and Heroine, the Mythic Dimension in Times of Transition and Growth with Jean Shinoda Bolen. This episode is the first part of the series Hero and Heroine. The full series is available on our website. From the seminar description, Jean Shinoda Bolen leads a workshop which offers an appreciation of how myth, legend, poetry, and contemporary stories provide insights that are meaningful in ordinary life, with particular attention given to those times in a person's life when major changes are occurring. It was recorded on January 21st, 1989. I mentioned last night that the subject, hero and heroine in every person, the mythic dimension in times of transition and growth, allowed me a great deal of leeway which it does, because it allows me to come and sit, and the music that was in the background is music that I happen to often listen to on my way to work in the car, and it helps me just to sort of float and think about collecting what I might speak about. And I have some idea always about what the choices are, but there's always a feel at the beginning about what feels right to begin any workshop with when there is such a wide range of choice. And I thought I'd begin by saying something about the notion of heroism 
or being a heroine or hero hero because I think it to be an attitude that is present all through life whether it be at three or at six or at ten or at fifteen or fifty it's when you have a sense that you are on your own and circumstances are difficult and the potential to give up to give in to fear to be overwhelmed is clearly there where there are definite risks to a sense of well-being where there are definite risks to a sense of will some spark that feels authentic be allowed to live and grow when often what is going on would oppress it or put it out and I think about the heroic quality as reflected in several myths, many myths actually, and in almost any modern story in which there is an identification with the protagonist as somebody quite human, meaning quite vulnerable, up against difficulties that however they are expressed, whether in science fiction or fantasy or psychological terms, that somehow the reader can say, I know something about what that feels like. Maybe I have never been up against a dragon in reality, but I certainly have felt the fire breath of someone breathing down my neck who might fire me and burn my career to a crisp or I can certainly understand what it might be like to be abandoned and out on my own. And in the last chapter of Goddesses in Every Woman, the chapter is called A Heroine in Every Woman, and I did describe the sense of how <coughs> we are all protagonists in our own life story, but that's the, that's the image, to think of yourself as being the major character in the most important story that you will ever know, which is your own life. And to imagine that you did come in like we all came in to a world that had a mixed reaction to our coming. Because I don't think, I think for all of us there may have been a time longer for some, shorter for others, where we enter and feel a sense of warmth and welcome. And then the world intrudes in some sort of way, and an insecurity comes, a sense that it's not entirely a trustworthy place or a trustworthy situation, and that we, consequently, are not perfect either. And there's a sense of separation at that point, and a sense in children especially that if we are viewed negatively, that there must be something wrong with us. And so over and over again, there is what happens outside is a struggle. But the next thing, and from a psychological standpoint, the more important is what happens inside. That when you are in a position as I am, as many of you are as therapists, you listen to people's stories. And you really get how varied the individual incidences are, and yet the major sense is, will this soul be defeated or not? Will there be a sense of absorbing whatever happens that's negative as being somehow deserved? 
and therefore if bad things happened to me, I must be bad. And to struggle against that is a major inner struggle. My secretary assistant recently found herself in what I consider a very heroic situation. That is, she was doing something at Jazzercise and slipped and fell and crushed the bones in her wrist. And she is a computer person and left-handed, and it was her left wrist that was terribly deformed and broken in many pieces, so swollen that she was in chronic pain and it could not be casted for some time until the swelling went down. And I heard her attitude of one, not blaming, not (coughs) martyring, having a sense that this was something that she was unexpectedly confronted with. And then she had to deal with um, the presence of chronic pain. And it made me sensitive to the issues of chronic pain. And I then came across a couple of articles. Uh, one a Anlesan gave to me, because it was part of her story. And it was a quote from Albert Schweitzer, and it talked about the fellowship of people who bear the mark of pain, and how when they survive that, when they've known what pain is, and have gone through that phase, how they are never the same, and that they belong to a fraternity of other people who have had this particular initiation, and can be moved to now pay back, for that was his attitude, um, to then go to Africa and, and care for others who have not yet gone through that initiation by pain. So there was, there was that. And then if you're a physician, you get a throwaway called the Robin's Reader that has sort of things to think about. It's a little uh, throwaway that, that has little sayings and little essays in. And it talked about heroism, the a heroism of um, what you feel like at midnight at three in the morning when you are beset by all your fears and the getting through the night kind of heroism, which means getting on with life, really, that what do you do when disaster has occurred, is occurring, could occur? What can you do? Well, the heroism in the middle of the night is that you keep on doing what you have to do and you move through it. And in some ways, this unheralded heroism is certainly what anyone who has ever been through any kind of dark night knows about, knows that there are times in which if you could only give up, you would, but you didn't because you're still here. Uh, the kind of thing that says, um, I will do, I will go to do whatever I have to do tomorrow morning anyway. And there gets to be a wisdom in this kind of heroism after a while. There's a notion that of, of this too shall pass, that of getting through, that you know somehow that you will get through, so that the next time it comes up, there is that awareness that as bad as this is, 
You've been through some tight places before, and you probably will find your way through again. And that's part of the wisdom that comes from having experiences that are like abductions, when you feel like you have been like Persephone in the meadow, gathering flowers, attracted to something new, and suddenly, instead of it turning out to be a beautiful experience, you are abducted in some way into a particular underworld. And that underworld might be a depression, it might be a disillusionment, it might be a betrayal. And what it does is plunge you into a depression where for a while it seems like nothing has meaning and that you'll never get out of this dark, dim place where all you have are memories. And yet, with life, there is an awareness that this passes, that in those dark nights that feel like they go on forever, that is not not really so. It's a subjective experience like Persephone herself had when she was in the underworld, there was a sense that she would never see the light of day again, that she would never see Mother Earth, her own mother, she would never be under a blue sky. And she did come through, and she was rescued by Hermes who came from Zeus as messenger god. And what I see about that is that the messenger god often brings a sense of meaning, that if at any point there is a sense of being a protagonist in a story that is a spiritual journey that has to do with your soul or character, then whatever is happening to you has some personal meaning. It isn't just random. Um, in, in um, I think it's in King Lear, there's a, a, a saying that uh, we're like we to gods, like we are like little, like flies are to little boys, we are to the gods, they swat us for sport, something like that. You know, that's what you feel like when, or flies? As flies to boys, we are to the gods. Like wanton boys. Well, anyway, you get the idea that uh, if that's the name of the game, it's meaningless. But if the name of the game really is that there is something about being human that has to do with coming into life that is fraught with difficulties and dangers, where pain, physical pain, physical deformity, where psychological terror, and where limited time and disease are part of what life is about, and that perhaps we can only learn something by being human and going through this kind of experience, because maybe though we intuitively would say we have a soul that has gone on and will continue to go on, all we know for sure is what we got right here. And then there's a sense of how we interpret what's happening. And when you start interpreting it in terms of living your own myth, in a sense, living your own story, and the point really is to grow in some kind of spiritual and psychological way in spite of what happens, or actually because of what happens. I mean, I, I joke to my friends when I've gone through a difficult transition, which I recently have for several years, looked at the, the kind of uh, irreverent, by, irreverent notion of saying, please, no more lessons. But I also truly know that it has been the major difficulties in my life all along the way 
that have shaped my character and have in the end been the, been the events that most affected who I am and who I'm in the process of continuing always to become. That it was really nice, it's really nice when the sun is shining and, and there are flowers to pick and, and there's a, a, a sense of ease. Um, and they should be enjoyed, certainly. But that isn't really what tests the character and um, provides an opportunity to, to really risk your soul, your psyche, because that's another word, the, the old word for psyche. The Greek word psyche means soul, and psychology in its oldest sense means the study of the soul. And that the difficult times are that in times in which you are tested to either give up or to identify with the aggressor and become, for example, if you were a battered child, to grow up to become, become a battering adult. That we are given lessons as we grow by the people closest to us. They, how they treat us provide us with reflections of what the world at that time seems to be. And we often have to decide at some inner level whether we go along with the bad parts and say this is and become cynical, or whether we see it in some other way. So I think that the major thing, the major idea behind a heroic or heroic attitude towards life is mainly to see that this is a story, um, that we are protagonists in it, and that the storyline is spiral. That is, if you think about your life and what it is you had to deal with when you were very young, in some form or another the story repeats itself, and here it comes again. Are you afraid of abandonment? Well, you are because you were probably abandoned at some point in your life. And here it comes again. Now what? Are you afraid of pain? Well, perhaps you are afraid of pain because you really experienced it. What's going to happen when it comes around again? Are you afraid of rage because it was inflicted upon you? Well, now you're an adult and here embodied in another person is the same opportunity, really to be confronted with the fear inside and the person outside. And to pause and to consider what is going on is part of an inner way of dealing with life. Very often what is admired in a patriarchal culture is the instinctual, not reflective, not personal personally vulnerable kinds of experiences. For example, we give the Congressional Medal of Honor to men who, and the citation often reads that this man, with no thought of himself, um, overcame a, the, the gunfire from three different snipers or something, and, and with no, uh, always with no thought for himself, just actually often entered an altered state of consciousness and retaliated out of anger and anguish or whatever he did. But it was inhuman in a sense because that person got pushed 
beyond his ability to think about the risks of it and to do it. Both heroism, which really should be called courage, coming from the word heart, kur for heart, um, and evil, I think have to do with being quite conscious of what's at risk and what it is you are risking of yourself if you take heart and do it anyway. Just as evil has something to do with truly knowing what you are inflicting upon the other person and what that other person really is feeling when you do it and doing it anyway. There's an element of consciousness that needs to enter in order to be consciously in your life story and not just driven by some archetype inside of you or driven by some instinct that has you response in a certain in a, in a certain adrenalized way. That pause between <coughs> action between stimulus and reaction in which we make a choice has to do with how we truly grow. So there's the, the element about choosing that is the significant one. And for some of you who have heard me speak before, I may have mentioned an indebtedness to Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning in appreciating what the bottom line really is. In his book, which the first part of it is his experience as a German concentration camp prisoner in which every member of his family was gassed. And the second part of the, of the book is his thinking and developing something called logotherapy as a result of it. But what struck me most in the book was his observations about what it was like in the German concentration camps in a situation where there really was virtually no outer choice. That whether you were still alive or, or would be dead tomorrow morning had to do with someone putting you on a list to go to the gas chamber or not. The kind of job you had in the concentration camp, the kind of food or if you had any that you got, where you were, what you did, all of the kind of things we take for granted were out of range of choice there. So virtually one would say that there was no choice. But he noted that there truly was, and this is where it, it struck me as the bottom line of it all and what the story and this personal myth might all be about. Because he said that even in that worst terrible condition when ostensibly there was no choice at all, each person could choose how they would respond. And whether you identified with the aggressor and the, the uh, keepers of the prison and oppressed others was a choice. Whether you decided that taking a crust of bread from a weaker prisoner was something that you would do. Or whether in that worst of circumstances you could experience human kindness and some kind of of encouragement of others and some kind of closeness and in a sense exhibit the highest of what is human in a situation that is the word in a situation that is the was probably the most one of the the most evil expressions of what humans can do to one another was the bottom line and I think that as an analyst uh, listening to people who are in the midst of their various life stories, there is beyond that point where you 
and this again is a, a something I think um, comes in the, the wisdom of Alcoholic, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's that, that kind of moment when you really accept what you cannot change, which is the past. Um, that what happened to you in the past happened. You can't change the fact of it, but you can work with whether you will be destroyed in the present by your bitterness and anger uh, your and whatever it is that, that you are there in your particular therapist's office struggling with. But the struggle really is to free yourself from being possessed by the past in order to live more freely in the, in the present and more trustingly in the present and to retrieve, for example, a trusting part of yourself again. <coughs> the stories that, that talk about heroism or heroinic journeying that I know that I want to talk about sometime in this next day and a half are two, at least two. One is to, to look at the Grail legend, some, and specifically Parsifal or Percival. And the other is uh, another look at the Psyche myth, which I know is a very favorite myth of Jungians. And you, if you have been to any Jungian events over the years, you've probably heard many versions of it. I think that it lends itself, that particular myth, to an endless interpretation. I mean, I think about how I have told the myth myself in workshop after workshop, and I keep <coughs> examining it and seeing another meaning, another facet, another way of interpreting it for myself. Or in my own life, something will come up which gives me an insight into another way of appreciating this particular myth. And it is a myth that I have found especially helpful in my own therapy practice. People have often asked me, given goddesses in every woman, you know, how do I use it in my practice? Well, I don't spend much time at all telling this to people in my practice. I, I'm actually quite traditional in how I spend most of my time listening rather than talking. But I think of all the stories, of all the myths that I've ever pulled a part of, out of the myth to, to, to use, to, to reflect <coughs> back to people, I think the tasks <coughs> in the myth of Psyche are the ones that I've probably used the most. And there there is a sense that if you have an understanding that beyond what you are doing yourself, you can see yourself reflected in a myth, it imparts a sense of meaning. And that essentially the reason for the ongoingness of myths is that it truly is an expression of what's going on in real life, and it conveys a sense of meaning as you listen to the myth and reflect upon it. Plus, it tells you something about what can help. So it has all of this, it has the, the, the power, it has an enormous power to give meaning, to give courage, to uh, reflect back, and thus be truly helpful to the person who is struggling 
with a particular facet of his or her life. And one thing about Psyche as a story is that she is a most unlikely heroic person. She is the person who comes up against an experience that she's never had before, an experience that she is called upon to do something or be someone she has never been able to be before. And her first reaction is always, I can't do it, I give up. And then she sticks with it and in some way comes, discovers a way. And that is the essence of the myth, but the interesting psychological part is what it might mean, how it might apply to a particular phase in life. Now the Grail legend, as I, which is, a, which is for Arthurian buffs, just as repeated different versions of different ways of looking at it, um, for me describes something about the impression of, starting with Parseval, about what it is that happens when you respond to a call and then have to live out what comes from that. And though they are very different myths, they seem to me often, one or the other, to apply, if not both, in a given situation. And I think that I will start with the Grail legend now, rather than the Psyche myth, because I want to make a particular point, which is the authentic call, the, the impetus that sets you on your journey because you are responding to something that's archetypally true. And I'm taking the liberty that everyone who's ever told the story of the Grail to uh, focus on it as it makes sense to me. And if I tell it another time, I might have a slightly different focus. And I'm also very aware that I have some real Arthurian experts in the audience. Uh, Freya Reeves Lambidas, who is back there in purple, was um, introduced, was, well, I met her in Europe because I was invited to go on a pilgrimage to my spirit, to experience my own spiritual sources, and specifically one of them was Glastonbury and the whole Arthurian realm and that I was trying to understand for myself the Grail legend from the standpoint of the women in the story, though I don't think I was that clear about what I was doing there at that time. And a, a foundation that is really embodied in an individual invited me to go and invited Freya, whom I did not know, to come and be my guide when I was in Glastonbury and Camelot country. And then there's Tom, who teaches Arthurian things. And so we have our experts historically and in, in the audience. And yet it's like dream work to talk about myth, where there isn't really a historical expert. The psyche of the person to whom the story speaks has as much 
right to the truth of the story as any expert, really, so that you hear psyche myth and you realize when you've heard the tenth Jungian in a, ro in a row tell the story of it, that maybe you too can tell the psyche myth from your own viewpoint, just as if you are into things Arthurian, you might also have your particular version of the Grail story. Well, first of all, I like to emphasize Parsifal, or Percival, the innocent and the fool, who is a major character in the story. And his story really begins with his mother. His mother had decided that she would raise her son in the forest where he would never know anything about knights and warfare. His father had been a knight and had been killed being a knight. His brother that he never knew was a knight and was killed being a knight. And so his mother, in order that this last boy, this last male member of the family, her only child left, would not suffer the same fate, took her little boy into the woods or the forest and raised him outside of all known culture of knighthood. And Parsifal grew up in the woods, a child of nature, close to nature, as a symbol of the forest is, when one day in the forest he chanced although we all know there's no such thing as chance, all synchronicity. But he chanced to come upon some knights in armor riding in the forest. And he saw the knights, and he was struck by their beauty. And he said to them, you must be angels. And they laughed at him. But they were kind, so they spoke with him. And he said, you must be angels. And this was because his mother had said that the most beautiful beings that he would ever see, should he be lucky enough, would be angels. And for him, these knights were the most beautiful beings he had ever seen. And this is really what falling in love with your own story is a bit like. That when someone comes into your life carrying your story, your growing edge, there is a sense of beauty, for Aphrodite, the goddess of love, was the goddess of love and beauty. And beauty is in the heart or the eye of the beholder, so that when you are, have an encounter with something that is numinous, it's because it is numinous for you. It may not be numinous for somebody else. Certainly, Parsifal's mother would not have viewed these knights as beautiful at all. But this was Parsifal's story. His archetype was, in spite of the whole business of being taken away from that realm, in spite of the fact that he never saw one before, it's like when a knight came into his life, he recognized his own true path. And the moment he saw the knights, he not only was struck by the numinosity of the experience, there was nothing else in the world that mattered to him. He said, how do I become a knight? 
how do I get armor like yours? And they told him. Told him about Camelot, told him about getting knighted by Arthur, told him about the various things that one might tell an awestruck kid who wants to know, how do I get to be like you? And when he heard how you, just the bare outlines, mind you, of how one becomes a knight, in the story, he leaves the forest to become one, not even looking behind to see what happens to his mother. And this, of course, is also part of a growth experience when one leaves the mother bond behind to become an active protagonist in your own story. When your mother or your father would have had another life for you, would have wanted you to have been somebody else, but you get that what they want for you is not the same as what gives your life meaning. And so you do destroy the dream of your mother or the dream of your father about who you were supposed to be. When you have the courage and the vision or the compulsion to follow the archetype that is your own story. So here goes Parsifal into the world and he has a series of adventures and he manages in fact to get his armor and he manages to get to court and be knighted and when he gets that far and becomes who he set out to be then and only then does he pause and reflect and wonder what happened to his mother now in real life this is what midlife is often about a person will be caught up in a particular quest to be somebody often it is uh, like Parsifal for men and lately for women too because we too can uh, respond to the call for adventure and success and achievement and and have our our joust with uh, competition and win and have the excitement of becoming competent and becoming our own equivalent of knights if any of you have have uh, heard uh, Joe Wilwright speak. He is one of the elders in the um, in the Jungian community. He was one of the founders of the San Francisco Jungian Society and one of the founders of the Interregional Society. He always referred to becoming a Jungian analyst as being knighted. Mm-hmm. That you got knighted when you finally became certified. Because it's a similar sort of thing. It takes a great deal of commitment and calling and energy and time until you finally get to be one. And then, then you're one. And uh, whatever it is, whether it's a, a becoming a lawyer or a doctor or an artist or, or whatever it is that you set out to be early in life, because the beginning story of Parsifal is what, what the person can do when they really are are called to achievement in a certain way, when there is a numinous underlying to the calling. And then you get it, you do it, which is what all of the knights did, actually. When you think about uh, Arthur and his, his round table, there was that whole period of time when each, every one of them was in the fray, whether it be Arthur who was king or his knights, they struggled together to unite a kingdom and life was dangerous and exciting and also rather fulfilling 
And then they did it. They beat everybody. They brought peace to the land. And then they did what we do often at midlife. We uh, get a little bit more laid back and start to build the houses that we now can afford. Only this one was called Camelot. And instead of the real struggles of life, where there really was a risk, you do something that is sort of a sport. Only they were called they they call it um, the the tournaments. Um, midlife men might hire out a safari and go shoot or something. But the equivalent is that the risk and the excitement and the real danger and the real difficulties are over, and one then can enjoy the fruits and be caught up really in the affluence of it, which, which, which was Camelot, the most affluent kingdom around at that point, that, that where this beautiful Camelot with all of its pageantry and beauty would, would be built. But then what happened is that it got boring. This is midlife. You've done what you set out to do, and there is a now-whatness about it. So that at Pentecost, at Pentecost, when the the fire and and the tongues of fire came to the the first Christians, at that particular time of the year, there was a visitation of the Grail. The Grail came to court, and the various knights in their own way, experienced the grail, had a grail experience. And then, individually, they set out on their particular grail quests. And in particular, it was such an individual choice, an individual journey, and they set out in all different directions. How can you find something when you set out with everybody going in different directions. I mean, with each, where is it? Where does it exist? There isn't, it isn't clear, obviously. Each person has to follow his or her own sense of direction about where it might lie. So that it is around midlife that the question of the grail comes up, that we run into sometimes a period of meaninglessness, a sense that, okay, we've gotten whatever it is we set out to get, or we didn't get whatever we set out to get. Here we are, and now what? And if we are lucky, because whenever you have an experience of the numinous, meaning something that is awesome, something that is sacred, something that has a sense of divinity and purpose, something that really can move us to change, we are fortunate. It's like falling in love, really. You can't make it happen. It happens, or it doesn't happen. But in this story, of the grail and it's coming to Camelot on Pentecost it happened it ex the experience was there and there was then the individual grail quest well I want to follow just one character who may not even have been present at this Pentecost experience because like Greek myths the Arthurian stories have variations on the theme. So I don't know that Parsifal ever saw the grail at Camelot. In fact, I doubt if he did. Instead, in his equivalent of the quest, it began with his having achieved what he set out to do and now remembering his mother, which has many meanings. I mean, you remember 
mother as the feminine. You remember mother as your that side of yourself that related to her. You know, when you become a warrior, you have to cut off yourself from the feminine, the anima, the vulnerable, those parts of yourself that are womanly. I mean, this is true for women, too. When you go up the academic ladder or the corporate uh, route, you put on your equivalent of armor also. The three-piece suit is, the, you know, it may change, but it's very clear what's acceptable garb and what's not when you go into the business world. And you put on the equivalent of acceptable armor outwardly, and you inwardly do the same thing. You know, you're not going to go to work and cry. You're not going to go to work and get... Um, and leave midday because you somebody needs you maternally and succeed in the world. There is a need, often, to cut yourself off, to forget what the mother represents, which Parsifal did. But now having achieved what he set out to do, it was like, oh yes, I wonder whatever happened to my mother. And so he sets off to find his mother, and he goes back towards the forest where he had come. And there's a sort of this image of his going down the road and getting to that place where the road stopped because there was now a river, only there wasn't a bridge across at that point. It was, it was like reaching the end of the known world and seeing across the river the realm of the unconscious of the unknown. And he, at that point, then crosses the river, enters the forest, and somewhere in that forest comes across this castle and finds himself going into the castle. And I might say something about... Um, who finds the Grail Castle, for this is the Grail Castle. Parsifal is known as the innocent or the fool. He listens to other people. He acts instinctively. He has a child nature, which is probably why he stumbled across the Grail Castle at all. Biblically, the word is, you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of God. Well, there's something about needing to drop the grown-up Cynicism, grown-up uh, knowledge, where you know everything, where you're scientific and rational. If you're ever going to cross the river and enter the forest and come across a grail castle, it's because you were willing to be as innocent and risk being as foolish as Parsifal was noted for. Because it is the child in us that is able to be touched often by the experience of whatever the kingdom of God is, or the queendom of the goddess. The realm of Avalon, or the Grail Castle, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, so Parsifal goes into the castle, and somewhere along this little, the line, he had the experience of just sort of taking what people told him as truth. He didn't process stuff and wonder about when you apply it or is, is this rule true or not, which is also part of often being a sheep or a kid up to a point. And he was told, don't ask any questions. So he comes into this realm of truly marvel. I mean, here's his castle, and here the door is open for him to come in. 
and he walks into this castle and he sees first a very unusual sight. He sees the king of the castle himself and he has this obvious wound. For this is a fisher king with a wound that will not heal. And our fool, our Parsifal, obviously sees it. You can't miss it. But he doesn't ask any questions. And um, the story is that, in fact, the Fisher King is in the castle with the grail that would heal him. But he has not access to the healing powers of the grail himself. For his healing to happen, an innocent, a fool, must come to court, must ask one of two questions in the various versions of the story. In order for the grail to heal the king, and only when the grail heals the king will his kingdom that is a wasteland also be healed. So here comes Parsifal, and he was supposed to say, What ails thee? But our fool comes, looks at the king, and mums the word. And actually, you know, we do that too, all the time. We are acculturated to look the other way. You see homeless on the street, you look the other way. You see a mongoloid child, and you are embarrassed to stare. You see somebody with a deformity, and you walk by. We grow up saying to our children, don't point, it's not polite to stare. And somewhere along the line, it gets caught up with yet another prohibition, which has to do with hardening, of, of not being open to other people's pain. And so we do not say what ails thee when we see people around us in difficulties. We don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to be bothered with their troubles. And so very often we too are like Parsifal. We walk and it's very obvious that a co-worker is an alcoholic. It's very obvious that someone is terribly depressed. And it's only after the disaster that the co-workers gather around and say, why didn't we do anything about it? Why didn't we say something about it? It's very true in my profession that all the committees that I have ever heard formed, the well-being committee of the institute, the, um, the equivalent, I don't think it's called the well-being committee of the Northern California Psychiatric Society, but I know the Northern California Psychiatric Society's committee to look after each other was an institutionalized response to three psychiatrist suicides. And that same kind of question about why didn't anybody really inquire what's the matter? Well, one of the, the, the situations, if you do not ask what ails thee, you are cut off from a compassion that you might otherwise have. So what Parsifal failed to do in, in seeing the king was he failed to say, what is the matter? And out of that dialogue, compassion would grow. But he ignored it. He didn't see it. He overlooked it. And because he didn't ask that question, the grail that would have healed a king did not heal him. So then our young man <coughs> sits in the castle with this obvious wounded king who he doesn't 
say anything about. But you know, we we are trained not to do that. It's considered sort of impolite. Um, because on a persona level it may be. And certainly on the level of curiosity, it's not appropriate. Because you do have to be willing to really hear what is the matter if you're going to ask. And be affected by what you hear. And that, of course, would change a young, forceful kind of psyche. I mean, if he really heard what was the matter, it would change him. And I also see this as a metaphor for what we need to ask of the patriarchy, because the king represents the ruling principle in the psyche, the ruling principle in the culture, and the image is that the ruling principle is wounded and cannot heal itself, and requires first that somebody say, what is the matter? And then I'd like to bring the story even more home to our own awareness of ourselves, that we do not ask ourselves what's the matter. You know, we notice the amount of aspirin or Tylenol for tension headaches has gone up. We notice that um, the blood pressure seems to be a bit high. We notice that the ulcer pain seems to be a bit greater. We notice the insomnia is not so nifty. We notice a lot of things. We're drinking too much, we're eating too much, or what have you. And when will some really caring part of ourselves say to ourselves, what's the matter? What isn't going right here? And the truth may be that we are not happy with our situation. We are not happy in some very significant way. And we are cut off from the grail as a result. We are cut off from a symbol that would heal us because we do not bother to ask ourselves, what is the matter? So Parsifal doesn't do that. But he asks in the myth another question he might have asked that would have made the difference. And this was the experience of the grail itself. And there are at least three versions of what he saw. But we know that he was in the grail castle and the grail procession came by. And we know that there are great, long, magnificent versions of the procession and there are shorter versions of the procession. The significant part for me is that in every case, in every variation, a grail maiden comes holding the grail. And he experiences it. And again, I think you also have to be the fool, the innocent, the child to experience the grail to be open to the numinosity of whatever the grail might be. Now, in the legend, it might have been a chalice, a stone, or a platter. So there's an ambiguity about what the grail was. But if you track what it seems to be for most of us, we get the mythological truth of what it represented by what image seems to stay alive more than the others. I, probably many of you are surprised that it was referred to as a stone and a platter. I was. Because I had always assumed that the grail was a chalice. And that is the most common story. In fact, the most common story is that it was a chalice used by Jesus at the Last Supper used when he lifted it up filled with wine and said this is my blood that will be shed and so it has a 
very strong Christian flavor as a symbol of Christ, as a symbol of the inner Savior, the, the resurrected one, the one who was not Jesus but the Christ, <coughs> the symbol of the communion cup that would then follow. And at any rate, it is in the story always a feminine figure, not a Jesus figure that carries the, <coughs> the grail, but a grail maiden who comes in with this grail that would heal the king and restore the wasteland if, if a fool should come to court and if he would ask, for whom does a grail serve? And I think about how in life it's highly likely that most of you have had at one time or another a personal grail experience. That is something that was sacred, numinous, meaningful. Often when it happens when you're young and open to such experiences, often the rational side says, now, now, don't get carried away, or some such thing. But if you will remember when it was at 14, at 16, for me it was about 16 that I had my first, what I would consider a real grail experience of sensing that there truly was a divinity that touched me. Now, I think that that's not unusual, that people have had an experience of whatever they called it, of Mother Nature, of Holy Spirit, of God, of something in which there was a real feeling of awe, like seeing the Grail. But then what? If you're like Parsifal, you just gawk at it. You just have the experience of it, and that's it. Unless you ask the question, what does it mean? For whom does it serve? <coughs> what shall I do with this experience that will change me? For whom? For what? Will this now serve in me? And I think essentially it has something to do with shifting out of the young ego position into a relationship with the self, as Jung called it. And then if you work, if your psyche is empowered, inspired, moved by the experience of the self, rather than by a complex or another archetype or by the persona or by what other people think, or one of you, that there is a experience of the grail that then changes your life. And you have answered the question, for whom will the grail serve? It will serve me to transform, to change, to bring me in touch with something that is spiritually vital in myself. And you can see if you realize all the people in the story that, like dreams, all the people in the story can represent and be parts of ourselves. That we have a Parsifal, and we have what is the ruling principle in us, the king. In our particular culture, it might be called Zeus. It's definitely patriarchal. In our psyche, it is a patriarchal attitude that assesses the value of what it is we do and how we spend our time and who we are with and that sort of thing. 
It also is the ruling principle in a culture that recognizes uh, power, abstract thinking, and logic. Left brain, I mean, the left brain really is the ruling principle in the culture. And the feminine, or the right brain, or the irrational, or the pictorial and imagery and feeling and music, the nonverbal side, is so often devalued. I mean, if you cannot logically defend your position, what? When your position cannot be logically defended because it was not a logical experience, and then what? Do you hold on to your individual truth because you know that whatever it is you experience, whatever moved you, moved you, and nobody else can tell you of its value except yourself. And then if other people question it and challenge you and, and um, put it down, what it is you experience, do you let them? Well, when the king is a ruling principle in your psyche, that often happens, wounded as, as that, that it is. For the king is wounded in his thigh, or in some version, so that's a little less censored, the wound is to his genitals because that's the idea, that he is wounded in his organs of genitivity and creativity, that his um, attitude has ossified so no new life can come from him, and naturally his kingdom is a wasteland. <coughs> Nothing new grows there. You know, if you are logical and practical and every new idea co that comes in, however inspired is put down, nothing new will grow. So unless he accepts, or that part of our psyche accepts that which is innocent and foolish, from the standpoint of the ruling principle, mind you, uh, and I also do get that for men in this culture, the prohibition against looking foolish to their fellow men really is constricting. And so one must have the courage to be the fool, to be the innocent, really. And then the story itself that interests me was that up to now I'm telling you the story as we mostly get it, which is the story of the men, the wounded king, the young knight. But what I found fascinating and set me on my own quest was thinking symbolically and thinking about the grail as a chalice filled with blood and feeling that that is definitely not only an image of the chalice used at the Last Supper, but is the image of the womb. Is it's no wonder that a grail maiden is always carrying the grail. Because if you think of a vessel filled with blood that would restore creativity to the, to the realm, it's a very feminine symbol. And then when you think that, the, that it was inaccessible to the king and hidden away in the unconscious forest, and you recognize something of the truth of the story for this culture, that the grail has disappeared, the feminine principle in its holy, sacred, healing aspect has disappeared into the forest and is accessible 
often now, initially through the feminine and through women, that it is known. When one becomes aware <clears throat> of how we are part of Mother Earth, of how it is that the body has a sacred quality to it, how it is that there is a numinosity to that which is embodied physically in women and now has been dishonored. That is, the whole procreative element has somehow taken on a negative cast. In thinking about the chalice as a womb symbol, a womb filled with blood, you have an image of the goddess, of the matriarchal spiritual level that is in our psyches and historically was present and then got replaced by a masculine power dimension and by the development of the mind, which for the past couple thousands of years was a remarkable development, but at the cost of repressing and devaluing the feminine that got lost in the forest. So that to become heroinic or heroic, there is a need, if you have a grail experience, if you have a sense that there is something wrong with the ruling principle in your life, in your culture, in your own household, that you have the courage to ask the questions and accept the answers. And that brings about change. I mean, when you really ask somebody what's the matter and are willing to hear it, then you can't do the status quo anymore. If it's a significant other in your life and you really note that he or she is not all right and you really ask what's the matter, you have to be prepared to hear that life as it is is not okay for that significant other. Or if you are willing to ask that of yourself, then you find that life as it is is not okay in some significant way and that might disrupt your life totally if you accept the truth of it. Just as if you honor whatever it is for you that is a grail experience, you then disrupt <coughs> your life because it then becomes a stronger principle than whatever the king is and it changes you. Well, our hero Parsifal, because he was not ready to ask the questions, because he was the obedient one who was told and accepted that he should act in a certain way, he, in this part of the story, did not ask the questions, and um, he then had the experience and missed the meaning, and went to sleep in the castle and woke up the next morning to find that everything was gone. And then the story of Parsifal is about spending a decade or so wandering around in the forest, having many different experiences that were humbling, difficult, spiritual metaphors for the lessons that he had, the encounters that he needed to go from a outer-oriented, achievement, warrior-type person into a 
soul that was ready to encounter again the grail. And I think there is mythologically over and over again the sense of wanting to have inwardly the equivalent of a second time around, a second coming, a, you know, you get a glimpse of something when you were young. And then after midlife, as we become aware of the fragility of our lifetimes, that one thing about becoming a midlife person is that you know that you have lived out half your life already, and it went awfully fast. And it's a time to really reflect, given the preciousness of life, if we accept that, given the purpose that we might have come to live, if we accept that, there's a sense of now what? And in order to do the now what, I think that it it's necessary to ask the question, what's the matter? And to be open to having a mystery reconnection with some source of meaning. And that this is a very individual quest. That Parsifal did not go in search of the Grail. None of the knights did by themselves. And from the feminine in the story, it is a need to bring the Grail experience out of the woods and back into the culture. That too long there is a sense of accepting the devaluation and the hiddenness of what women know of the feminine of the earth. And I think of that as something that midlife women are especially positioned for the first time in history to, to, to consider doing. Because never has there been a time uh, when women approach and go through menopause having had two decades of the women's movement behind them. Two decades or more in which defining what is personal, defining what's psychological and political and economic, what is women's experience, what's women's nature has been defined by women. And there is now the potential of speaking for what you know. There's a book title that says when I grow old, I shall wear purple. It has to do with a kind of permission at a certain time in a woman's life to no longer be bound by what you're supposed to do, but what it is that's authentic and genuine. And men and women at midlife have a moment or a period of truth as to whether they will claim what is authentic and speak what is true or identify more and more with the persona experience. And what happens as that happens is what we see in midlife. We see that there are two groups of people, one who grow middle age and old, and who get rigid. Jungians have a wonderful word for it. You become senexy, or senex in your ossification. And nothing changes, or you allow new life to come in, and often it is allowing the Parsifal or the Persephone, the, the maiden or the boy, to come in and, and revivify things. Because midlife is a time when the wasteland is a real potential, and the question of what will restore the wasteland. And this myth 
for men it is that the wasteland is changed when one acknowledges the wounding and returns as Parsifal did, mind you. He, he did get what he set out to do, not in an actual way. He was going back to the forest to see what happened to his mother. We never hear about whether he was reunited with his real mother. We understand that metaphorically the mother he came to be in touch with was the feminine and that it took him an awful long time wandering in the forest before he consciously returned to the sacred dimension of the feminine again. And for the woman who knows in her body and knows in her psyche that there is a sacred dimension, it behooves her to speak of it, to help bring the healing quality of it back into the culture. I have enjoyed speaking before and some of you to some of you in this group about the return of the sense of the sacred to the feminine in terms of um, of the blood mystery so to speak and I'm going to repeat it because it has the power to empower women postmenopausally because it speaks to the truth and that is the thought, the image, the description of how people before they were rational and scientific and knowledgeable about menstruation and babies and menopause used to view the whole experience of watching women's body change and her experience with the blood mystery of being a woman with some awe. There was first the experience of watching a maiden, a girl, become a woman when her body changed and she bled for the first time. And then to bleed once a month, probably in cycle with the moon, probably because she was living in a tribal kind of situation, in sync with other women as well, that women bled once a month until they became pregnant. And then for nine months they stopped bleeding and the thought was they retained the blood in the body to make a baby. And that went on through the childbearing years. Month in and month out, the blood would come, except for the nine months in which it was retained to make a baby. And then, somewhere, 30, 40, 50, who knows when in those times, but say bodies haven't changed that much, that somewhere in the 40s to 50s, what was observed was that women stopped bleeding monthly once again. And this time there was even more awe because the assumption was they were once again retaining the blood in the body, this time not to make a baby but to make wisdom. And this was the honoring of something of women's experience. And it seems to me that uh, in the heroic element it is time for women to speak of their wisdom and it's time for men to listen to the feminine wisdom in themselves that knows that affiliation is more important than power over for example that the principle and 
the relationship together need to both be honored that Carol Gilligan in her book In Another Voice found that the long claim that women were less ethical than men were based on tests that men made up in which the highest ethic was based on holding to principle no matter what. Found women didn't do that because they could see the need for relationship as having, when push came to shove, a higher ethic than going with a principle. And it's only when women articulate, or men who are in touch with this in themselves, speak for it, that it can come to be a joint coming together of the highest ethics of, of both sides. And in our lives, those moments of truth often come, where we have to decide, for example, if we have been one of these people who live by rules and principles, whether when we are confronted with a human experience, whether we will let a heart consideration enter, or if we are always affiliative type folks and we seem to be always forgiving people no matter what, there comes a time when we need to acknowledge that there are certain principles that people also have to hold to and that we need to speak for that. So there is, whatever it is, whether you come from the male side or the female side or the masculine side or the feminine side, there's a, there is a moment of truth where the healing requires taking on and speaking for what it is you know, whether it be the grail that is the high experience or the wound that needs acknowledged. So this is my version of the Grail legend, and I see that as we entered the forest that time we lost, I mean, what happens with stories is that time passes. It's 11.30, and what I'd like to do is certainly have a break. And I want to come back before lunch and do a guided meditation as a Jungian does a guided meditation. I don't know whether you folks cross cultures and you have <coughs> guided meditations when you go off to some other group. <coughs> but uh, let's, let's um, at quarter of 12, come back again, make yourself comfortable, and do a Jungian guided meditation. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about training programs, live and self-study courses, archives, this podcast, our blog, or to find Jungian analysts near you, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Thanks to our 2022 donors who gave at the contributor level or above. Barbara Anand, Juni Alcott, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Building Leaders Inc., Judith Cooper, David J. Dalrymple, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, Ryan Mayer, Boris Matthews, Judith A. Robert, Diane Sherwood, Lawrence C. Tingley, Deborah Tobin, Don L. Troyer, Robert Ulrich, Gerald A. Weiner, Ellen Young, and Wei Zhang. You can support this podcast by making a donation at our website, newchicago.org.